Okay, greetings to you all and to friends who are watching from home also. We are working our way through First and Second Kings, looking at the lives of Elijah and Elisha. If you remember a few weeks ago, Justin told us that reading through First and Second Kings is sort of like watching ESPN's Last Dance, right? The collapse of the bull's empire, the crumbling of a dynasty. And if you carry that along then one of the most shocking moments in the Bulls' empire and their dynasty was the retirement of Michael Jordan. If you remember back then, this was October of 1993. It was one of the most shocking moments in sports history, and especially because it came out of nowhere. No one saw it coming. It was totally unexpected because Michael Jordan was at the top of his game. He was 30 years old at the time. He was coming off his third consecutive championship. He had just won gold playing with the Dream Team. He had been the scoring champion seven times in the league and the MVP the last three times. And after all of that, he was going to walk away from it all. See, what we didn't know and only came to know later was there was sort of a dark underbelly to all that success, a darker side that no one saw. There was the weight of global popularity. And then, moreover, there was the tragic death of his father. And there were pressures, professional and personal, mounting on this man. And so at the peak of his success, at the height of his popularity, at the pinnacle of all his accomplishments, Michael Jordan was ready to throw in the towel, to tap out, to be done, to walk away. Well, in 1 Kings 19 we are essentially watching as Elijah the prophet hands God his resignation letter and tells God that he's done. In 1 Kings 19, he tells the Lord that he is retiring. He's ready to tap out and throw in the towel. He's going to quit and walk away. And you should know in the narrative, this is every bit as shocking and surprising. It comes out of nowhere. You don't expect it. You don't see it coming because Elijah too is at the pinnacle of success. He's at the place where every person in the ministry hopes to one day arrive. You see, God had done spectacular things through the life and ministry of Elijah. Elijah prayed and the heavens didn't rain. And then three and a half years later, he said a prayer and it started to pour. Elijah was fed breakfast and dinner by ravens, selected and sent by God. Elijah went to a widow's house and the jar of flour and the jug of oil never ran dry as long as he was there. Elijah is the first man in all the Bible to raise someone from the dead. And if all of that wasn't enough, Elijah was on the mountaintop last week in chapter 18, literally on a mountaintop. And he had a contest with the prophets of Baal and fire fell down, proved that God had validated him and his ministry. His prayer was heard not in a few hours, but instantaneously. And by the end of chapter 18, it's as if the entire nation is chanting his name. Meaning, Elijah literally means, my God is Lord. And by the end of chapter 18, the people are literally chanting, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. I mean, it's the kind of success you hope to arrive at as a believer, where God is so near and God is so real and God answers your prayers. And then one chapter later, 
In 1 Kings 19, we meet an Elijah that has gone from the mountaintop to the deepest valley, who has plummeted from the heights of heaven to his own personal hell, who has gone from a pinnacle to a pit. And we meet in 1 Kings 19 a believer that is hurting, a ministry leader that is despondent and dejected, that is disappointed and disillusioned, that is depressed and that is down, and we meet a man of God that is ready to resign. And resign not just from ministry, but resign from life. In fact, in 1 Kings 19, he will literally ask God to take his life. He says to the Lord, enough. It's enough. Please take my life. But not only do we see Elijah's personal collapse in 1 Kings 19, we're also given a vision into how the God of Elijah relates to people for whom life and ministry breaks them. In 1 Kings 19, you get a vision for how God relates to people who get broken by life and ministry. See, I, I suspect that in a crowd like this and friends who are watching at home, we know something about life in 1 Kings 19. I know that all of us wish that life and ministry looked like 1 Kings 18. We wish that life was lived on the mountaintop. I wish that God always seemed near, that God always seemed real, that my prayers would be answered like this, and often they're for His good and glory. And I wish that God was so vivid and so dramatic and that you'd live life in 1 Kings 18, up on the mountaintop, where victory is what you walk in and success is what you know and God is near and God does great, big, dramatic things to show you that He's real, to show you that He's near. But we also know that life often, far more often, feels like 1 Kings 19, where we are ready to throw in the towel where we don't know how much longer we can keep going and we're tempted to walk away. Walk away from God and the things that God has for us. And so the question is, how does God relate to a hurting person, to a broken believer, to a burnt out ministry leader? You see, so far in 1 Kings, we've seen this great global God who has power over everyone and everywhere and everything. He's the God who controls the storm and sends the fire, commands the ravens, raises the dead. And this great global God rules over all the nations. But now the question is, how does he relate to one hurting individual? How does this great global cosmic God who rules over everyone and everything and everywhere relate to a broken believer, to a burnt-out ministry leader. To find that, we need to be in 1 Kings 19. So if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn it there or look in your phone. Let me pray, and we'll consider this chapter together. Father in heaven, we ask even now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear because we need to hear this word and to hear even today your still small voice that you might minister to us personally and to our church corporately. Meet us today, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
When we finished 1 Kings 18, as a reminder, Elijah was at the top of the mountain. Remember, Baal had been shown to be the fraud of a God that he wasn't. And moreover, then the prophets of Baal were defeated. The nation is chanting, the Lord is God. Three and a half years later, rain falls down. After all of that, here's what you'd expect 19 verse 1 to read. You'd expect it to say, and Ahab repented of his idolatry and repented of his apostasy. Jezebel converted and worshipped Yahweh. A great revival broke out in the land and all the people turned back to the Lord. That's not outlandish. That's what you'd expect. It's sort of like I was thinking, if we held a global press conference this afternoon at 4 p.m., and we announced to the world that we want to show the world that our God is the true God. And so at four o'clock, we're going to cry out to the living God and he is going to wipe the planet of coronavirus. And by 4.15, coronavirus was gone. And reports start coming in from the ends of the world that the virus is no more. You would imagine that after that kind of a press conference, you would finally have the kind of compelling evidence to convince all our neighbors and the world that the Lord is God. You'd imagine that then there would be conversions. You'd imagine that people would repent. You'd imagine there'd be statements coming out of Washington, D.C. and world leaders everywhere that at last the Lord is God. I mean, it would be acceptable to imagine that after that kind of evidence and demonstration, the world would turn. That was certainly Elijah's expectation. He had literally had a contest. He prayed down fire from heaven. God showed up. There was no question, the Lord is God. The people chanted that. And so he ran to Jezreel, the capital city, imagining that a statement was coming out of the palace. A message would come out from the king and the queen. And a message does come out, except not the one he had hoped for. 19 verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. There will be no revival. Apparently, the fire of Mount Carmel did not melt Jezebel's heart. It only hardened it. Instead of revival, what you get is a promise of revenge. She swears an oath by the gods. The very gods, 1 Kings 18 proved, don't exist. And yet hardened, she swears, may the gods kill me if by tomorrow I don't kill you. Something, isn't it? We would like to imagine, I would like to believe that if God would just give evidence if he would just show up in real tangible ways, answer our prayers, show up in a way that no one could mistake him, then everyone would believe. And even the pressure we put on ourselves, if we could just get our presentation of the gospel just right, answer all the questions that people have, then everyone would, of course, believe. But 1 Kings 19 reminds us of the hardness of the human heart. The blindness of human eyes to see spiritual things. Our natural deadness to the things of God that apart from his sovereign spiritual intervening touch, no one believes. You see, even though God showed up, even though he answered every prayer, 
made Elijah's dreams come true, there would be no revival. Ahab doesn't repent. Jezebel doesn't convert. And Elijah himself instead finds himself the most wanted man in all of Israel. There's a bounty, if you will, on his head and a bullseye on his back. And so verse 3 reads, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough, O Lord. Take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. You see the man? He had stood fearlessly 450 against one. And this courageous man is now cowering and running. He's run 100 miles south to this wilderness and he leaves his servant behind. He has no more need for him. Because what Elijah's going towards, he doesn't need anyone else. He's done. He's gone into the wilderness alone and tired and afraid with a bullseye on his back and an enemy that has sworn it's her life's mission now to destroy him. He's done everything God has asked him and what does he have to show for any of it? Nothing. I mean, you think of it. If Mount Carmel isn't going to change the nation, then what other trick does he have up his sleeve? Like if that wasn't enough, to bring about the kind of repentance and revival he hoped for, what's going to top fire falling from heaven and God showing himself to be the Lord? And so Elijah says, I'm done. And Elijah quits the ministry. He resigns. In fact, he goes further and says, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. I think what he's saying is there were prophets who had come before him and yet Israel hadn't changed. Can you imagine if there was a part of Elijah that imagined, I now have brought fire from heaven. At last, the nation will change, and I'm no different than my father's. The nation hasn't changed. The queen hasn't converted. The king hasn't repented. I'm no better. Take my life. It's this awful, sobering moment when you realize you're not God's answer to the world. A really humbling thing, especially for those of us who have a great godly ambition to do great things for the Lord and yet to realize you're not God's answer to the world. God doesn't seem to do the dramatic things you would imagine he would do. And so now, here Elijah is saying, Lord, it's enough. Just take my life. I wonder, friends, if you have been there. I'll answer that. I know you have. In fact, I would say some of you are there right now, despondent and dejected disillusioned and disappointed, depressed and down. I know some of you have been there. I've been there. And so the question is, how does the God of everything and everyone and everywhere, the God who commands the storm and sends the fire, who commands the ravens and raises the dead, how does that great global God deal with this one individual, this hurting broken believer, this burnt-out minister. Verse 5, And he, that's Elijah, lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. 
And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Sevma wrote, how does God relate to this broken believer, this hurting individual, this burnt out minister? Listen, he lets him take a nap and then he cooks for him. God's ministry to this worn out man is a bed and breakfast. That's what God does. He lets him take a nap and then he cooks for him. The angel of the Lord comes. The angel of the Lord shows up very rarely. It's the presence of Yahweh himself. And the angel of the Lord comes. And when he comes, he doesn't give a standard angelic greeting. No, fear not. No, get up. Here's the mission I have for you. Instead, the angel of the Lord, the presence of Yahweh comes and he lets this man nap. And then he touches him. You can picture him sort of shaking Elijah awake. Elijah, wake up. You need to eat something. And when he wakes up, there is sitting in front of them this hot meal that God has prepared, freshly baked cake for Elijah to eat. I don't know about you, but I'd ask you, is that how you expected the God of everything and everyone and everywhere who commands fire and storm and raises the dead and commands the ravens, is that how you imagined he would come to a doubting believer, a hurting, broken man, a man who just handed in his resignation letter to ministry? No lecture. No theology lesson. In fact, nothing even that feels particularly spiritual. The angel of the Lord doesn't tell him to get up and pray doesn't give him a Bible study, doesn't tell him to fast, doesn't tell him to stay up and, and spend the whole night seeking the Lord. In fact, all of that will have its place, but first, cake. First, cake. It, it's almost like if you're taking notes, it seems the key to dealing with hurting people is freshly baked cake, right? That's, that's God's ministry. It's almost as if you have a God who remembers our frame. And knows that we are but dust. And that what this hurting believer, this burnt out ministry leader needed was a nap and a hot meal. I wonder, Semmar Road, for those of you like me who are so used to seeing God like an employer like Pharaoh. You remember the story of Pharaoh? He demanded bricks. And he didn't care if Israel didn't have the resources to make the bricks. He didn't care if they ran out of straw all he cared about was the same number of bricks keep getting made. And if you relate to God like that kind of an employer, you're amazed by a God who comes and offers a nap to his people. How very unlike Pharaoh this Lord and God is. Or if you're like me and you tend to relate to the Lord like he's Baal. Remember how you got Baal's attention? You performed all day. You wore yourself out. You exhausted yourself. You bled to show that you were serious and sincere. And yet to this God, he comes and feeds you after you tell him you want to quit. He comes and ministers to you after you've handed in your resignation letter. What kind of God is the God of Elijah? 
You keep reading and you find that this God then invites Elijah to meet him at Mount Horeb. And when he gets there in verse 9, God says this. This is the question that greets Elijah on the mountain. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Can I tell you, I find this whole exchange incredibly odd. And I find it odd because it strikes me as very inefficient. It feels like talking just for the sake of talking. Like, why is God asking a question that he already obviously knows the answer to? Why does God do that? It's not like when he shows up at the mountain, God really is going in verse 9, Elijah, what are you doing here? As though it were some kind of thing that God needed to grasp for him. Why does the all-knowing, omniscient God, who knows everything, the God of everything and everyone and everywhere, ask Elijah a question that he knows the answer to? I heard one preacher say, when God asks questions in the scriptures, it's not to get information, but to give it. Not to learn something, but to teach something. If you're taking notes, it's almost like we move from the ministry of cake to the ministry of questions and conversation. That that's how God's going to deal with his troubled servant. That God asks a question that allows Elijah to unburden his soul. And God has every interest in leaning in and hearing his sorrows. Hear that again. God, to this hurting man, leans in and asks him a question that he knows the answers to. So that Elijah can begin to rant all his troubles. Lord, you know I've been jealous for you. I have wanted your glory. I've wanted the nation to turn to you. But they have forsaken you and torn down your altars. And there's nobody left. I'm literally the last one. And now they want to kill me also. And so he begins to pour out his soul. You remember Baal? They cried all morning to Baal. Performed all afternoon for Baal, bled for Baal, exhausted themselves for Baal, spent themselves for Baal. And at the end of it, you remember it said, and no one answered. No one paid attention. And yet you have a God who comes and pulls up a chair and says, unburden your soul to me. Tell me what's going on in your heart. And here, Elijah's response, he doesn't see everything right. Some of it's exaggerated. Some of it has a tone of self-pity. Some of it is hopeless and pessimistic. But this is where Elijah is. And God is more than ready to hear this broken believer and the laments of this worn-out minister. You ask yourself, could this really be what God is like? Cake and questions and conversation. Could he really be this kind? Could he really be this compassionate, this tender, this gentle? Could he really be the kind of God who would come down and say, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light, and I am gentle and humble and lowly in heart. And Sephema wrote, here's what I'd ask. If God really is like this, then don't we want to be like this? And don't we want to be like this to one another? And wouldn't we want a whole community of people who are like this? Wouldn't we ask the Lord that we would be the kind of community where it's safe for you to fall apart? 
when we ask the Lord, all our failures and such, that we would be the kind of community that when you're hurting and burnt out, this would be a haven where you will get rest, where someone will bring you over a hot meal and bring you a freshly baked cake to make you feel better and listen and ask questions and let you pour out your soul. We'll fall short of that, but isn't that the kind of community we would want to be? Or I wonder, as I've wondered many times this week, how many times our homes would be helped, and I say this having failed at it more than ever having succeeded, how, how much our homes would be helped if our first instinct to our hurting spouse or hurting children wasn't to fix them, wasn't to lecture them, wasn't to give them a prescription of super spiritual activities to do, but to give them the ministry of a nap and cake and conversation. The Lord remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. But we keep going because here's the thing I want you to hear, and don't miss this. Bed and breakfasts are great. Cake and conversation is wonderful, but man does not live by cake alone. He needs more. And so God keeps ministering to this broken man. Verse 8, he goes to Mount Horeb. And verse 11, here's what it says. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Catch this. God invites Elijah to meet him on Mount Horeb. If you're not familiar with that name, perhaps you've heard its more popular name, Mount Sinai. And God tells Elijah to meet him at Mount Sinai. And then Elijah goes up and essentially hides himself in the cleft of a rock, in the hollow of a mount, if you will. And the Lord God is going to pass by before him. Does that sound familiar? If you were here for our call to worship, this is what we heard. Here is this prophet. The people have fallen into idolatry, worshiping a false god. And the prophet makes his way up the mount finds himself in the cleft of a rock, and the Lord God will pass by in all his glory. This is Moses' scene all over again, what Sibi led us through in the beginning of our service. And the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, passed by Moses, and his glory was so great that from that moment on, Moses' face began to shine. He had to literally cover his face with a veil because it was too great to see the Lord pass by. So now, here's another prophet. After the people have fallen into idolatry, in the cleft of a rock in Mount Sinai, and the Lord's going to pass by. How's he going to pass by? How is he going to reveal himself to Elijah? Well, all of a sudden, a great wind comes, a, a hurricane that trembles the rocks, breaks them into pieces. And listen, that makes sense because God comes in whirlwind. Read the book of Job and the Lord appears in a whirlwind. Or read Acts and you'll see that when the Spirit falls, a great mighty rushing wind fills the house. But this time, the Lord was not in the hurricane. And after that, an earthquake. 
And that makes sense because the Lord comes in earthquake. If you read Exodus 19, the first time Israel is by the mountain, the mountain itself shakes and trembles. Sinai trembles. And so now here he is, 1 Kings 19. Sinai trembles, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then after that, a fire comes. Well, Elijah, out of all people, knows that the Lord God comes in fire. We had seen that on a mountain just last chapter, the Lord coming in fire. And it makes sense because the Lord often comes to his people in fire. A pillar of fire would lead them by night. But here, the Lord is not in the fire. And then after that, the sound of a low whisper. A gentle, still voice. Elijah encounters God in a whisper. So Samar wrote, the question is, why does the God of fire and wind and earthquake show up here in a whisper? I think it's because Elijah needed to know at that moment that his God is not only the God who works in fire, but a God who works in the whisper. Here's what I mean. Elijah was convinced that the only thing he was living for was to see national revival that would come because fire would fall. Something grand, dramatic, like a storm, like a wind, like a fire, like an earthquake. That's what God will do to cause the people to change. That kind of dramatic, larger than life, blockbuster, special effects way is the way we need God to work if we're really going to see the world change. And God is determined to come to him and say, uh-uh, I am at work in the whisper. I'm at work in the really small things that no one pays attention to. I'm at work in the really small things that you miss all the time. The indiscernible, almost faint, can't even hear it ways in which I'm at work. I know you are waiting for special effects. I know you're waiting for earth-shattering stuff. I know you're waiting for fire to fall down. And I'm telling you, I'm in the whisper of stuff. Don't despise the small things. Don't despise the mundane, ordinary, small ways in which God is at work all around you, all the time. He whispers to Elijah, I want you to go and anoint Hezio and Jehu and Elisha because Elijah... I am at work in places, among people, and in ways you know nothing about. My work hasn't thwarted. It hasn't stalled. My mission hasn't stopped. I intend to keep going, but it'll go forward in ways you don't detect. It'll go forward in ways you don't see. Elijah, you don't know it, but there's 7,000 people I have reserved, a remnant for my name, who have not bowed their knees or kissed the bail. Elijah, my work in the world is alive and well and strong, and it's in a whisper. Oh, how we should hear this, Sevmarod. How we should hear it when we consider, for example, even us who are Western Christians. As we find Western Christianity under attack, as we find the church in the West marginalized, losing its power, maybe even losing its voice in the world, we would cry out and wonder, what will the world do if there's not us? And perhaps the Lord, the God of whisper is saying, I am at work in places, 
among people and in nations you know nothing about. And nothing has thwarted the advance of my gospel. The gates of hell will not stop the advance of my church. Jesus is at work in small ways all the time. And while you and I wait for big budget blockbuster fire from heaven, the whisper is all around us of the countless ways in which the Lord God is at work. So don't despise the small things because God is in all of it. God shows up in big, grand, unmistakable ways when a baby church plant in its first year inherits an eight-acre property worth $5 million for free. And it's unmistakable and clear that your dreams come true. The Lord answers your prayers. God is real. But can I tell you, God also shows up when a small GCM, a community meets together and just in the ordinary mundaneness of word and prayer. God whispers to us when a, a group will meet in an hour or so to just talk through life after COVID and how to deal with it and how to bear it. And in the grace extended to one another in that community, God's whisper is present and there. God's whisper is present when a husband repents of his sin. God's whisper is present when a dad walks around a block with a son and they pray and seek the Lord together. God's whisper and his work is at work all around us. And we ought not despise the small and whisper ways in which the Lord God works. That mountain, let me say this, Elijah saw Yahweh God like he had never seen him before. But can I end by telling you this? That mountain was not where Elijah would most clearly see what God is like. It would be on a different mountain, not Horeb. Because you see, many years later, Moses and Elijah, the two men hidden in the cleft of the rock before whom the Lord God passed, they would both show up on a mountain again, not on Sinai, but a mount we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And there they would see the clearest revelation of God. And he didn't come in fire. And he didn't come in earthquake. And he didn't come in wind. But they saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that the whisper became flesh. The word of God came to dwell among us. And here's the thing, when God became flesh, the world didn't even notice. God had invaded the planet in Bethlehem and nobody even saw it. Nobody even noticed. Nobody took note because he didn't come in earthquake or fire or wind. He came like a whisper in Bethlehem. This is the way the Lord works. And on that mountain, Moses and Elijah, staring Yahweh in the face in the person of Jesus Christ, would speak in that mountain of Jesus' soon coming death and resurrection. And there they would see what this God really is like. A God who ministers to a broken and hurting world, not just with cake or conversation, but supremely with his cross. A God who had come to be broken for the broken, to be hurt for the hurting. Samaro, that's our God. and He's at work all around us. Let's not despise the small things. Let's pray. And as we pray today, I want to give you a moment to pray. And we'll lead you through prayer in two different ways. We'll pray for two different things. 
So if you're watching online, I want to invite you to pray with us in a moment. If you're in a pod, you're welcome to pray by yourself or pray with someone next to you. But I just want to lead us to two things that we can pray for, right? You can pray in your household, pray on your own. But here's the first thing, and we'll take two minutes to pray for this. Would you pray for those who are experiencing discouragement and disappointment and depression? Maybe you know someone in your life. Maybe you know someone in the church. Maybe you know someone in your neighborhood or your community. Maybe it's you. And maybe one of the things you'll do today is you might call out to a brother or sister and tell them you're in this kind of a place. You're in 1 Kings 19. And imperfectly, you'll allow this brother or sister to care for you as God did for Elijah. But let's pray. And let's pray that God would minister to hurting and discouraged and disappointed people and do so mentally and physically and spiritually as whole people. And let's even ask the Lord that we would be the kind of community that cares for hurting people as God did. So would you take two minutes? You can pray on your own, pray with your household, but let's pray over these things.